do apologize. I am going to sit down in this text for several weeks. I, I think it is something we can just grow and grow by. It is one of the deepest truths of scriptures that we must wrestle with and by the grace of God get our minds around because if we don't, the gospel is tainted. It's misunderstood and it's constantly challenged by the religions of the world. So I would ask that you would just give me a little grace as we work through this text over the weeks to come. Verse five says this, have this attitude in yourself which was also in Christ Jesus who although he existed in the form of God did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men being found in appearance as a man he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross for this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You may be seated. Lord Jesus, we humbly read these verses and that's certainly the attitude why the Spirit of God wrote through Paul, Lord, that we would be humbled at them. We confess, Lord, as we delve into this text again this morning, that it is somewhat mysterious. We try to wrap our mind around the God of creation adding human nature to himself and yet still remaining fully God. But Lord, we are convinced no matter where our understanding is on this text, Lord, that this must have taken place, Lord. Otherwise, our atonement is not complete. So this morning, Lord, as we grapple with these deep truths, Lord, may you help us. Give us wisdom. May your spirit help us understand these texts for your glory. We thank you for this text. We thank you in Paul's day that it was not a battle then as it is today. Help us, Lord, to settle these things in our mind and our heart. In Jesus' name, amen. The wrestling and the grappling with the dual nature of Christ, this hypostasis, hypostatic union of the Lord Jesus Christ is a good wrestle. In fact, I would say it is an essential res re uh, wrestle for your faith, uh, for your understanding to understand that, that Jesus is fully God. It is the central truth of our salvation. Otherwise, if he is anything less than that, your salvation must be added to by something you must do if it isn't complete there. So, so these truths are essential to us. 
but yet we're reminded that they lie within a context as Paul is writing on helping the church to think of others, to, to be humble and to realize that we have a tendency to think of our own needs and our own desires. But yet he uses one of the greatest doctrines in scripture to help us learn that. The apostles understood this. It's very clear they grabbed, they grabbed this and ran with it. It is taught throughout the writings of this position of the Lord Jesus as fully God and fully man. And, and I want to do an, for our introduction, I want to take you to Acts chapter 14 because I want you to show you how they reacted to this um, position of, of only deserving, God only deserving this, Christ only deserving this. I was reading this this week and uh, just in my own personal time of reading, I came, I was working through this text and I thought, wow, look how the apostles handled this. Acts chapter 14, verse eight, they are in Lystra, uh, this is the Southern Galatian churches. These are the ones who later got a letter called Galatians. He has been working his way through these towns, preaching the gospel, and people are getting saved. And the church is being established. Amazing things are happening. And the Spirit is working in incredible ways. They don't have a complete canon yet. There is not the scriptures that we have. And so the Holy Spirit's doing amazing, marvelous things to give the authority to the apostles who are preaching the gospel. Now, there's a man in verse eight, and you remember the story, he's lame, his feet had no strength, the Bible says he was this way from his mother's womb. He's a complete invalid. And there's not wheelchairs, and there's not accessibility that we have today, they didn't put the sidewalk corners with the little dots on them. Um, they didn't do that stuff. He's totally dependent on others to get him place to place. And they don't have what we have. So this man in verse 9 is listening to the Apostle Paul preach the gospel. Paul fixes his eyes on him in verse 9. Verse 10, he says, stand up. The Spirit of God's doing amazing things. And he leaps up in verse 10 and he began to walk. Kind of want to see the replay on this someday, huh? He's, he's lame from birth. And he's now up and he's, he's not just up, he's leaping. Seems to be the trend when people get healed um, in Acts, they leap for joy. I can understand that at some level. Verse 11, notice what happens then when the crowd saw what Paul had done. They raised their voice saying in their Lyconian language, the gods have become like men and have come down to us. They missed the preaching of Paul clearly, wouldn't you say? The gods have come down and they are now with men and they, they're with us. And they began to call Barnabas Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, verse 13, brought oxen and garlands to the gate and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowd. They're missing the gospel. They're missing who gets the glory. And they're treating the apostles as though they're gods on earth. Now let's see how these men respond to the, to the 
doctrine that only belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice what they do. Verse 14, but when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their clothes and robes and rushed out into the crowd. There's a good response, right? Do not in any way align us with deity. And they know this. They know that that belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ himself. In fact, it's such a violent term, isn't it? I mean, I don't, I've never seen anybody act this way. But I hope that if somebody ever falsely accused me of being, uh, uh, having deity, I would wrench my clothes and run out and say, no. It'd be a horrible sight, but. Now look what he's saying in verse 15. Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of the same nature as you. And preach a gospel. That's the contrary statement in all that's going on here. We're preaching the one who is God to you. And you've missed it. In fact, you're trying to make us out to be gods. We preach the gospel to you that you should turn from these vain things. Turn from the false understanding that you have that will rob you from understanding who came and who added deity and I mean who has deity and who added human nature and who the true God man is is. And he equates this to the living God. And how do you know a living God? You know him through Jesus because he was living and he was on the earth. And you see him. And Colossians tells us and throughout the scriptures, Hebrews and John tell us that he was creator Heavens and earth and the sea and all that's in them. Oh, I read this this week and I said, that's the reaction that we should have when Christ is robbed in any way of his deity. Whether there's those who say, oh, he can't be God. Or those who say somebody else could be God. We should react in this way. And we should show the contrast between that and the true gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn back to our text with me. And just a quick way of review. Our first point we looked at last week was the doctrine of Christ drives our behavior. And you notice in verse five, it said that we were to have this attitude, this thinking, this way of reasoning and understanding and it was an imperative. Paul said this in a, in a command form, an imperative way that we, us believers, that we as those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ have this attitude in yourself which was also in Christ Jesus, to have this thinking. And from here we realize by the inspiration of the Spirit, Paul does an incredible thing. He takes the doctrine of the dual nature of Christ Fully God, fully man to explain how to have this attitude. And we learned, and remember we said this, that Paul is instructing us, just as the Lord Jesus instructed us, that the way up is the way down. We go down in order to go up. And Christ is that glorious example. In fact, we said this, we said, this text shows us a sweep of his life. He's Fully God in heaven, angels at his beck and call. He's creator, sustainer of all of life. And yet, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1 says that he steps out of heaven. And he accepts humanity. 
He says, Father, a body you have prepared for me, and I accept that. And so he goes down. And as we read through this text, we realize that because he does that, he accepts that humanity, and he's fully God, but yet adds that humanity to him, the Father exalts him and gives him a name above all names. And he is glorified for eternity. And so we learn this is what Paul is trying to teach us. And he's using a great doctrine to teach behavior. Next, we realized that his deity demands our humility. And we said that man's biggest problem is that he rejects Jesus as God. That is the biggest problem with humanity. If you want to discuss another bigger problem than that, I'd love to talk to you. If you reject Jesus as God, you're damned eternally. So it is man's biggest problem, right? You say, well, cancer and war and all of those things. Hey, you could solve those things and still spend eternity in hell and you have not solved man's biggest problem. His problem is he is a sinner and he's rejected the one, the God-man who can fix that. So we push aside all the years of, of false teaching that Jesus is not God, he's a prophet, he's equal to Satan, some religions teach, a brother to him, um, most just teach he's a good teacher, he's a good role model. And we push aside all those years and centuries and history of, of that false teaching and we come back to the Bible and we remind it in John 1, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. And that's the teaching, that's what they believed. And, and, and we saw it in Colossians that, you know, he is the firstborn of all creation. It means he has everything. Everything's given to him. He's, he's God. He holds all that in his hands. We looked in Hebrews chapter 1, and we were reminded that, that he, is, he has all things. He is the radiance of the glory of God. He is exact representation of his nature. He upholds all things by the power of his hand. And then we looked at in verse 6, remember this, we looked at just that word morphe, that tells us that he existed in the form of God. And we realize that he, he, this means that Jesus was outwardly man in form, but inwardly he was existing completely in equality with God. And we see that come out of him, right? We talked about Matthew chapter 8 when he's asleep in the boat, he's tired, he's worn out, he's, he's fully man in that sense, and he's been healing and feeding and caring for people, and he's wiped out. In an instance, he stands up and goes, boom, let me show you my deity. And his creation bows to him. And you sit and marvel. We looked at one more word, this isos. We get the understanding from this word that he was equally regarded as God. He, he's He's God and equal in every way. And we, it was just amazing. We learn we, these Greek words get into our English language, of course, and, and isometrics having the same equal measurement. We use that word today. And Philippians tells us that though Jesus was outly appeared as a man, he was inwardly sharing the exact essence, exact substance with God. And this is where we said, if he's not God, if Christ is not fully God, there has to be another way to the Father. 
And that's what the world believes. So they reject Jesus as being God, so then they say, okay, he's a good guy, he does some great things, but he's not God, so that means that I can take some things from him, but then I must add the other things from my own self, from my good works, my deeds, my heritage, and then I can combine those two and I can get to God. Do you see that? That's false, that's that's a lie from the pit of hell. And it scares us because many people believe that. I was talking to some friends who minister in the Mormon world the other day, and they said this, the Mormons hold to a full works-based salvation. This, this man was saved as a bishop out of Mormonism, and he said they, and it was just because we were talking about this subject, and he said they believe that it's a full-based works society, there's three levels of heaven, of course, and you're trying to get to the top one, and you have to get this all done. You have to live in a way that brings glory to God and perfect, and, and make, if you fail, you have to confess those things, and you, you've got to be right. And then if you don't quite get there, that, that God will provide the little more grace that it takes to get there. And they're good people, aren't they, humanly? They're kind, they're family-oriented, all those things. But yet they have rejected this doctrine. And so you're left, listen, you're left, if he isn't God, then you have to take something out of your own self and your own strength and what you provide and mix those in order to ever to be accepted by God and you gotta hope, you gotta hope that you did enough. It's dangerous, it's eternally dangerous. And that's why this doctrine is so important that we realize that we bow the knee to a Jesus who is God, who said, it's done, it's finished. Don't add to my work. Place your faith in me that I did it all. And you will find eternal life. Let me pick up where I left off as we went into verse seven. We come to this little phrase, but he emptied himself. But he emptied himself. He's just told us that he has not regarded this equality with God, something to be grasped or held on to. And so in a sense, God, our, our Savior, our God-man, he, he veiled it. He laid aside that divine privilege. And he says he empties himself. This is the word kenosis we get in the Greek. And that, that word has a lot of argument. People said, well, he emptied his deity. Well, I don't know what you do with Matthew 8, and he makes raging seas go flat. And he calls demons out, and he heals the sick. I, I, and he dies for our sins. How can he empty himself of deity and do all that? So, so he didn't empty himself, as our English word kind of brings there. He, he veiled it in his human flesh. Some say he exchanges deity for humanity, so he gave up one in order to take another. We have the same problem. He added humanity to his deity. And so here's how we say this. I want you to get this down. Maybe write this down if you want to kind of get your mind around this theologically. Jesus laid aside his divine privilege in order to veil the full radiance of his glory because they would have never touched him, let alone killed him. Just think about that. 
He veils the full glory of his person so that the world would come and get him. If he is Matthew 17, his deity seen by Peter, James, and John on the top of the Mount of Transfiguration, they are not going to touch him. See how humbling that is? What if somebody doesn't know who you really are and they treat you as though someone who you're not? That's what Jesus did his entire life. They looked at him and they said, well, he's just like us. And yet he does these amazing things. We can't quite compute that, but he's man. And he didn't come to do what we want him to do, so we must get rid of him. See, Jesus humbled himself. He laid aside that divine privilege that he had. Now, I know that's deep, but I want you to go to Colossians chapter two that we just read for scripture reading because I want to support this. This is supported all through the scriptures. And, and, I, and I said some things about the religions of the world and I, we love those people. We want them to come know Jesus so we have to set the record straight, right? We're not... We're not, we personally don't condemn them. Their choice condemns themselves, right? So they reject Jesus. But I want you to understand that this was a problem even in this day. It was starting to happen. Colossae Church sees it. Verse eight says, see that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception. Well, is he really God? Maybe he was just a good example for us to follow in order to get somewhere. And God will supply you the rest of the grace that you need. Look what this is set in. According to the traditions of men. That's what man comes up with. Well, there's a Bible, but we have another book that comes alongside. According to the elementary principles of the world, that's, well, this is what we determine is good and bad and right and wrong. Rather than according to Christ. And you go, well, what's he talking about? What is that all about? Look at the next verse. For in him, that's Jesus, all the fullness of deity dwelt in bodily form. Paul says, when they take away the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ, this is empty deception, it's vain philosophy, and it's traditions of men. And he supports it here. And he says, for in him, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. When you were on this earth, when Peter, James, and John sat there and, Bar and, and uh, um, Thomas and Philip and uh, Bartholomew and all those other disciples, and they sat there across the table having a meal with the Lord Jesus Christ, they stared at God. They understood it. And he says, look, when you see Jesus, you see God in bodily form just blows the mind of the religions of the world. And it would blow your mind if God didn't open your mind to it. We would be the same. We would go, oh, well, come on. But God opened your mind, didn't he? The day you got saved, he began that process of giving you an understanding that Jesus was God and what he did was a tremendous God thing that no man could do in order to bring you into his presence for eternity. And you tell your family and your friends and they go, woo-hoo. Don't invite them over to Thanksgiving. Right? 
and, but look at verse 10. I love this because it doesn't end there. I want you to understand his deity is for our purpose as well. So he dwells in bodily form. He's God in bodily form. Notice this. And in him, Jesus, you have been made complete. So here's our position as believers. We, we are complete. We are indwelled. We are baptized, immersed into the person of Jesus Christ fully. You're made complete. So it means you believe that he's God, God places you in his son, and you don't add anything because the word complete is complete. Thank you. Well, shouldn't I do some stuff in order to ensure that I'm going to get there? That's dangerous. Hey, we are here today because we love Jesus. Are you gaining eternity for being here today? You're in the wrong building. We're here because we love our Lord and we're complete in him. I do not add one iota to him at all. See, we're complete in him and he has head over and rule over and has authority over all things. And then he goes into this great description of our salvation, 11 through 15. I love some of these verses. Ron and I have talked about this many times. We love these verses. And, and we, we talked about this, the, the beauty and the symmetry that's taught to these verses of, of Christ's death and our death with him and our baptism with him and, and this, this certificate hanging above us. Scott's dead. <laughs> I'll take that certificate. He's alive. And I made him alive. Because I died for his past, present, and future sins, and he's complete in me, and the Father sees him as a co-heir to eternity with me. Boom, drop the gavel, it's done. That's, that's what he did in his deity and his humanity. He finished these things. And his deity demands our humility. Look at point three with me. His humility draws out, his humanity draws out our humility. Now, here's one phrase I just beg you to write down or at least remember. If you hear anything today, this is, I think, a sum up, sum up phrase of this text as far as I'll get today. The key point when you look at, look at verse 7 with me back in our text but he emptied himself, and then it says this, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Let me, let me give you just a summation statement here, a short one, to help you maybe get your mind around this. Christ became us in order that we might become like him. Can I say it again? Christ became like us in order that we might become like him. That is so important. Christ becomes like us. He takes on humanity, flesh and blood, experiences human life. So he can die, because you can't kill God. So he can die, so that ultimately he can receive you and you can become made in the image of Christ and stand in his presence forever. So Christ became like us 
so you could become like him. Does that make sense? You get that down, you're a theologian. That's, that's what this means here. So the one who was equal with God, in a moment of time, Jesus, him, equal with God, took on the form of men so we could be like him. Hebrews chapter one, a body you have prepared for me, Father. Boom. Steps out of heaven. Because there was no other way. There was no other way for you, 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 me. There was no other way. And, and, I, and I love that about this. And it's so vivid in the language there. there. The word for likeness here in verse seven where he becomes made in the likeness of men. Not only is it just likeness of men, he's a bondservant, meaning he's, he's dedicated to a cause of serving someone or something. That's what the bondservant was doing. But he's made in the likeness of men, this Greek word we get our, our word humanity from or human from. And it has the idea that not just like, like a likeness of him, but he became this slave likeness and one who would serve. He, he takes on humanity and, 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 and bondservant and dedicated one. And that's what he said, right? We love Mark 10, 45. For even the son of man, his favorite term about himself, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. That was Jesus' message. Mark just capitalizes on that message all the way through the book of Mark. That is the theme of Mark. Does Christ, when we think about that, draw your humility out? At Christmas, we talked about Isaiah 9, 6. You remember this verse that says, for a child will be born to us and a son will be given. There's two real powerful verbs in there. One, there's a son that will be born. Think about that. Jesus was born. I just saw a brand new baby just this week. Stephen and Hillary's. And it's a son, Stephen II. And he did that, and, I, and I'm studying this all week long, and I'm over at the hospital and looking at this new one. I, just my mind, I didn't say this out loud. I'm just thinking, hmm, Jesus did that. Born. Mary cried the birth pains, I imagine. And, and here's Jesus coming into the world. He's born. So you can say, well, you, you can't say he doesn't understand. He doesn't know how difficult his life is. He could have bypassed the birth process. I'll show up at three. Pass the terrible twos, right on. Maybe I'll just show up for my earthly ministry. See, people say this all the time, though. They say he, he wasn't God when he was young. And maybe he indwelt a man named Jesus for a little while. See, this is a false teaching that is just prolific around religious circles. The Bible says a child will be born to us. He was born. With all the difficulty of birth in a sinful world, let alone being born in a barn. Then it says, the next verse, it is a son will be given. I like that phrase. A son will be given. He is a gift. He is an absolute gift to us. He didn't come down in all his glory and his array and just said, hey, listen to me, follow me, I'm gonna take you to heaven. 
That's what disciples thought, right? Can we sit at your right hand, left hand? When are we going to take over Rome? When is this all going to come to an end? When is the kingdom going to be here? They did not know they needed a savior first before they get the king, right? John 6, we want a king. You don't need a savior. So these verses constantly remind us of this. Let me take you to another verse that really draws us to you. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 8. I want you to see this with your own little fingers in your Bible, your pad, your phone, whatever you're looking at. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. What an illustration of the God-man here. You see this here? For you know, that little first phrase, right? See, Christians believe this stuff. If you're a Christian, you believe this stuff. For you know, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, keep an eye on that word Lord, that's gonna be a key word next week. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. Define rich. All of heaven at his beck and call. Creator, sustainer of everything known to man and things not known to man. Angels sing of his glory day and night. That's rich. Became poor, born in a barn, and a few shepherds show up. See this verse? This is, a, this is it. This is Paul talking about this hypostatic union of Christ. And then look at the, what we call a henna clause, the, the understanding, the, the thrust, the punch of this verse. It says, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Through his humanity, through the cruelty that he had to go through, he hungered and he thirsted and he suffered in humanity. He experienced human life so that you might become rich. And you know that all that that was talking about in heaven? He did that to bring you to be the most wealthiest beings in the entire creative order. Joint heirs with Jesus Christ, Romans 8. It all had to be done through his humanity. So if Christ is not fully man, then he can't die, he can't atone for your sins, and there has to be another way. And the other religions of the world are right. There's got to be works. And then there's going to be this great judgment if you did enough. Set of scales in heaven. Hmm. Scott, other door. You want to put your name in here? Look at verse 8 again with me in our text. I like this little phrase. I want to point this out to you this morning. Being found in appearance as a man, that word appearance is the Greek word schema, schematai here in the text. It's an interesting word because he already said in the verse before being made in the likeness of man, but here they use a different word, being found in the appearance of a man. This word schema is a very fascinating word and I want this to minister to you. It has the idea that Jesus not only added humanity to himself and was physically man, 
meaning he was tired, he was hungry, he suffered like men, mankind does. But it has more the idea that he experienced the experience of being a human. The word of God is telling us right here that Jesus not only experienced our feelings and our emotions, but he endured a fallen world. And he suffered, now, now think about this, he suffered pressures, he suffered longings, he suffered problems, he suffered circumstances, he suffered persuasions, both good and evil. Jesus experienced it all. And thus there was nothing that was not a part of his human experience. Good and bad came at him constantly. Does good and bad come at you? Do you have decisions what's right and wrong? What to watch, what not to watch, what to speak, what not to speak? What to hear and what not to hear? Where to go and what not to go? I mean, do, they, do you not experience the fallenness of this world? Jesus did that. And you know the verse, Hebrews chapter four, verse 15, for we do not have a high priest, that's Jesus, one who can come into the presence of God who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. Doesn't that make you understand that verse a little more, the schema tie? He experienced humanity to its fullest. And you go, well, I don't know. I don't know, Scott. Um, you know, he's God and he's walking around and he can feed people, you know, with little fish and some bread. You want to go into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights on Satan on a full attack? I think maybe you and I have maybe had Satan himself maybe come after you. He's not omnipresent, so he can't be after Bruce and after me at the same time. He can't be in South Africa and after Mark Christopher and over them. He took him on for, seven, for 40 days, 40 nights, seven days a week. He knew temptation. We only have a glimpse there, just in Matthew, a short narrative of what it was like. Let's move to the cross. You say, well, Jesus suffered on the cross. Well, the, Josephus and other historians tell us that 3,000 people died that they know of that are recorded that died on a cross just like Jesus Christ before he died. Bad way to die. You say, well, was Jesus' different? Was Jesus' death different than theirs? I can promise you not one of those 3,000 people who died on a cross never had the father take Scott's sins and all of your sins and press them on his son as though he committed them. He experienced rejection to the highest level. You ever been rejected by a friend? Someone turned their back on you, not care for you, not love you, not treat you like you thought you treated them? See, you know this stuff, don't you? Jesus experiences his 12 disciples right before his death. One says, ah, I'm going to sell you for 30 pieces of silver, the price of a slave. At his rest, when he's arrested in the garden, the Bible says they all fled. Your right-hand man, Peter, denies you three times. Publicly. While you're being beat and punched and whipped. See, this verse is amazing when he says being found in the appearance, he experienced humanity at its fullest. You have a savior who loves you. 
when you are hurt, run to the one who already suffered what you're suffering. He's there. He knows what you're going through. He knows the weight that has been pressed on you in this life, in our humanity. And he'll give you the ability to get through it. Some final thoughts here before we close. If Christ is the central theme of the scriptures, which he said he was, right? He, he rebuked his disciples on the Emmaus Road. In Luke 24, he says, he said that all of the scriptures were about him. The law, the prophets, the Psalms are all about him. If he is the central theme of scriptures, then the death, the cross work, the finished cross work is the defining mark of his work. And that's what it means when you look at the text. It looks at, it says he humbled himself by being a com, becoming obedient to the point of death and then qualify statement here by Paul, even the death of a cross. The next couple of weeks, we'll hear a lot about Easter from Christianity, um, from Protestant beliefs. And much of what you'll hear is his suffering. You'll see people packing crosses around towns. Um, you'll see movies come on TV, Passion of Christ, other things will come on. And, and I want you to watch because what the world focuses on is his suffering. Look what they did to Jesus. They beat him, they whipped him. I mean, when you watch the Passion of Christ, if you've ever watched that, it's rated R because it's so bloody, so graphic. The Bible doesn't talk about that stuff. Look in your Bible today and look where it says where he's crucified and it says, and then they crucified him. Belt us. A little more graphic in the Psalms. Psalm 16, Psalms 22. But here's the way the Bible remembers the cross work of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 9, 26. He, Jesus, has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. That's how the Bible remembers the cross. Let me give you another one, 1 Peter 2, 2, 24. He himself, Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin, live to righteousness, for by his wounds we are healed. Nothing about blood and guts and Horrible things that we know happened to our Savior, and I'm not lessening that. Those are, those are significant, but that's not what the Bible remembers. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. He, God, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, he's holy, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's what we remember at Easter. His death this efficacious death, efficient for the forgiveness of our sins for all of time, and it's what we offer people. Do not offer them anything else. Do not offer them, oh, hey, we'll teach you to be a more religious person. Hey, we'll teach you to give. We'll teach you how to do these things. That will not save them. That will condemn them. Teach them that we have a very, 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 very free gift, and here it is. It's Jesus. I was recently reading through Leviticus, came to Leviticus 16. There, Aaron is told to take two goats. One, put your hand on this one. Symbolically transferring the sin of the nation onto this goat 
and then slit his throat and bleed him out and sacrifice him. Then he needs to take this other goat. Put your hands on this goat. Symbolically transporting the sins onto this goat. It's all a shadow of things to come. And put your hands on him. And then take that goat and lead him away so he could never, ever, ever come back. Jesus is both. He's both the goat that died and bled for you and me. And he's the goat that takes our sins away that never, never can come back. That's who he is. And I think these verses just show the love of God so clearly through the Lord Jesus Christ. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. God loved you through Jesus. Here he is. Here's my son. He's fully God and fully man. So you don't have to perish. Galatians 2.20, we see the love of the son. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ, so it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And a life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What an offering you have for somebody in your life. Here he is. You can say God loves you and he gave himself for you. You can say that with confidence because God says it. 1 John chapter 4, verse 10, this is, and this, is, this is our verse right here. And this is love, not that we loved God. Well, that's the case, right? You didn't come out of the womb going, where's God? I love him already. You came out very selfish. Ask your mother. You're, we're just selfish people. And so the Bible says, not that we love God, but that he loved us. And he sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. What an incredible love God has given to us. That you and I may have a savior. Last verse. I want you to compare that verse that I just gave you out of 1 John 4.19. And he's a propitiation. He loved us so, so much that he'd add humanity to him. And then I want to transport you to the garden at his arrest. And they say, are you Jesus of Nazareth? And he says, I am. And what happened? The whole crowd fell down. See, he's humble man who adds flesh to himself. Go ahead, take me. Well, who are you? I'm Jesus of Nazareth. Are you the one? I am. Boom, everybody hits the deck. I think I would have got up and said, something's not right here. This guy can take us anytime. But man in his lostness thinks he's greater than God. And that's where he changed our hearts. We see him as both the humble servant who hung on a cross, who bled and died for us, and, for, and God used him to forgive all of our sins. We see him as that beautiful, humble, loving Jesus, and we see him as the Almighty who says, I am, and everybody hits the deck. That's our Savior, and that's who we serve. Next week, we'll see his exalted position, 9 through 11, and we'll worship together. 
we're going to give Darren the last song off, and uh, we're going to close, and we're going to go home and think about these verses. Father, thank you for this beautiful text, Lord. The exalted Son, fully God, angels flying around, crying out to him, holy, holy, all things at his beck and call, holding all things by the power of his word, steps out of heaven, accepts the bodily form of humanity, experiences humanity, and is fully man to this day. He becomes like us so we can become like him. Lord, I, I, I don't think I can say Christianity better than that. He becomes like us so we can become like him. And that Lord takes in his death, his resurrection, his power over sin, but yet his suffering for us. And here we are, joint heirs with Jesus Christ now. All the believers in this room are joint heirs, Lord. You did that. And so we praise you for this, Lord. Father, thank you for a chance to talk about your son today. We could talk about a lot of things in this life, but there's nothing greater that we can speak of than Jesus. So may he be on our lips and hearts as the day unfolds today, as we go about our business this week, Lord, whether we're students or we're teachers or we're um, professional people or we're stay-at-home moms, whatever that role that you have given to people in this room, Lord, may our hearts be full of the Lord Jesus Christ and his goodness to us. We pray this in Jesus' name.